Lucky you. Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) Whoop. Let's start again. Eddie Childs, who was the president of the uh, and owner of the Western Company, oil company, he used to ride Hogan constantly and gin games and just just in general. And they would go back and forth and scream at each other across the uh, 19th hole. It was it was a comical, comical world back then. But uh, so Hogan got mad. So he uh, he came in and he said that this was a Friday. And so he came in and he said, "Okay, I'm playing tomorrow. If Baldridge and I have the same deal with everybody and go ahead and double all the bets. Of course, everybody jumped on the bandwagon. They're going like, oh, of course we will. So Hogan was first out with Baldridge, and he ended up shooting, I think it was like seven or eight under. But what he did is when he finished in the Friday in that making the bet, he came into the, to the uh, golf shop, and he said, uh, Jody, go get Henry Martin, who was the green superintendent. So I drove down to the shop and got Henry and uh, brought him back up. And then he and Hogan went out on the golf course and set the pins on all 18 holes. Now, J.D. Oaks, you could put some pins out there that would be Augusta-like. And so Hogan went out there. Of course, everybody else that went out and played, you know, shot a gazillion and uh, ended up shooting like seven, eight under incredible round of golf. But what he did is he walked in the 19th hole when he finished and he took his hat over and he just tossed it in the middle of the table and he says, just put all the money in there. <laughs> and, and then he went over and showered. Uh, Charlie, who was the guy that took care of the 19th hole, uh, came back into the shop and told me, he said, I think there was as much as $20,000 in that hat they got through. Oh. I went, wow, <laughs> that's a big Good number. Thing he didn't wear a visor. Oh. <laughs> well, Alternate Shots fans, we are blessed today with round two, Mr. Afternoons with Mr. Hogan and Jody Vasquez, who's got the life of Riley on the West Coast where this doesn't rain like in New York or in Florida. You had that beautiful weather for the American Express Classic, the Birdie Festival. How do you win that thing with less than 45 birdies in four rounds? Come on, Jody. <laughs> Well, I'll only, the only way you can win it above that is just to make more putts. And, and uh, putting is the world out here. You know, we physically are in a dome. It's a week worth of sunshine, no wind, and perfect grass. So it's a, it's a heck of a place to spend any time. Well, uh, we're back at it again with your favorite topic. And there's no better picture on my library of Ben Hogan than him standing there in the fairway in the 1959 U.S. Open with the Wingfoot tallies, thinking about, you know, what he's going to hit. And, you know, everything in this picture, you've taught me about Hogan. He could have cared less about the guy carrying his bag there. He uh, he was thinking about, was it a five or six iron? Was he going to fade it? Was he going to draw it? He wanted to get the sweat off his brow because that might 
drip down on his grip and he was going to put his hat back on and just annihilate the pin. And if this well, is his second round, uh, he's got to figure out how to play out of his own divot. <laughs> uh, that is a famous line. And, and uh, that was a Sam Sneed line uh, when he was at Oakland Hills. And uh, I, I did hear him, uh, a member at Shady Oaks uh, came up to him and said, hey, I heard this story about you hitting it in, in uh, your divot in the second round. And uh, he said, yeah, that was Snead. Uh, Snead came over to him and said something to him about, yeah, if you're that damn good, why don't you just hit it an inch to the left? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting you bring up Snead because there's a great book called a American Triumvirate, probably read by Dodson, and it talks about Sneed and Hogan and Nelson and how they got, you know, they were all born in the same year. But you, you focusing on Hogan, which is our topic today, you just look at the strength. He wasn't a big man, maybe about 150 pounds, would you say, five foot nine? But look at the muscles on him. Yeah, I think that if you saw him physically or standing up against him, the thing that would pop out to you is that how how structured he was uh in his hips and his his legs i mean he was a very very stout uh, man and uh all the energy that he that he uh created in the golf swing was definitely from the ground up and that's before people even thought about ground up so yeah he was he was physically very very uh very strong human being so Jody, uh, did he ever have a favorite golf course that he talked about? No, he didn't have their favorite he, course. Now he was really guarded about, you know, putting a particular uh, golf course out there in front where someone would take it and run with it and say, "Oh, this is this is Hogan." The right. only uh, the only comment I had a friend of mine uh, from Pinehurst uh, say that uh, he heard Hogan say that the uh, the sixth hole at Pinehurst, the par three, uh, was the greatest golf hole, par three hole he'd ever played. And so he said, would you ask him? So I was over at his office one day and I asked him about that. And he said, no, I never said that. He said, I think what I did say was that it was the hardest par three I ever played to birdie. Because if you've been on that hole and played that hole, the green complex and the undulations in it, extremely hard to land a ball on. And so I think that was the comment from his standpoint uh, about the property. Now, the respect he had for Carnoustie was enormous. Uh, the way those people embraced him and the way they treated him. I remember visiting uh, with Mrs. Hogan, uh, Valerie, about that trip. And uh, she talked endlessly about how great those people were and how they treated them. Uh, they, at that time, were rationing uh, uh, meat products. And the people working at the hotel actually gave Mrs. Hogan the coupons that they got for their ration of meat so that Hogan could have a steak every night while they were uh, there at the hotel. So uh, they really were enamored with him, and uh, he, he proved to be worth it. These are great stories. You, you 
people often think he was a robot or not human, but he really was and got to know him. But he lived on oranges in his early days on the tour. He didn't he ran out of money and he was going along the fairway picking oranges and had those at night. I read and and uh, his strength, we all know his father killed himself, but he also got strength in that caddy yard where it was almost like a fraternity hazing. So many caddies washed out because they couldn't get through. They literally had to go through the other caddies who would take a whack at him. And uh, Hogan often, they said, had to put up his dukes to defend himself just for that 65 cent a day loop. Uh, there, there are a lot of stories about that. I've heard different versions over the years. Uh, there's no question uh, that he and Nelson, you know, caddied there. And uh, that's really where he met uh Marvin Leonard, which was his primary benefactor, you know, when he first got started and literally his person, his most personal friend, you know, as they went through life, um, Marvin Leonard's the guy that built Colonial Country Club and obviously Shady Oaks where they spent the rest of their lives playing. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's stories about that. There's stories about the, uh, the caddy tournament that they played, uh, where Hogan and, and Nelson tied. And so they then took it in the extra holes. And supposedly uh, the members really liked uh, Nelson uh, better than Hogan uh, because he was just more personable. And so he ended up uh, losing that. And uh, uh, again, there's just different variations of that story, but uh, it's, it's pretty well known in the, uh, in the Fort Worth area. Uh, Glen Gardens now closed. It's actually a a uh, bourbon distillery, so uh, it, it's no longer uh, on property. It, they did make good use of it, though. <laughs> if you like the brown stuff, uh, it, it's a it's a it's a well used property today. Uh, <laughs> I was playing at a Texas Amateur qualifier. No, a Texas Amateur. Yeah, it was a qualifier. I think one year. And on the first tee, they told us, don't go near the fences. They had somebody that was uh, shooting guns uh, so there. So you played at the golf course, going around and, and keeping an eye outside the fence, just to make sure you didn't see somebody with a gun. Yeah, that's one time you don't want shots on the golf course, right? No, <laughs> you do not want that to happen. You mentioned him saying about hardest par three for him to birdie. You know Wingfoot's 18 holes on the West Course. Let's just stick to the West Course for this discussion. What would be the hardest hole Ben Hogan would consider to birdie at Wingfoot on the West Course? Yeah, I think day in, day out, you know, 10 is probably the most challenging. And I know you get to, to tee it up and put your hand on it and all that, but uh, that green complex and, and where you have the pin located, uh, that's – I, I, I can't tell you how many years I played in the Anderson there, but uh, very few times did I ever see anybody birdie that hole. When he would play from 193, the blue tee, traditional, just off the green of the 18th hole by that big oak tree, what would he play from there? What would his iron, what would he pull out of the bag for that shot? No wind, just a straight 193-yard shot. Yeah, I think easily he would probably hit a three iron in there. He always which five, which is a five iron today, right? <laughs> For some, yeah. it's less For than sure that. <laughs> I mean, loft-wise, they they you know they bend these things so. 
Yeah, I, I uh, actually, in my book, uh, I've got a chapter in it in which I uh, actually uh, took the stats of what he used in his club building off of the uh, off the chart that was in what what they call the model shop, which is where they uh, built all his all his clubs. And he had a chalkboard up there, and the lofts and everything were sitting on that chalkboard. And I just made some notes of it one time, and this is way back when the Pafford facility was being used. And it, it's a pretty interesting note, as you're talking about right now, about comparing that stat of what they used as lofts and links uh, to what the players use today. You know, I, I guess it was probably, what, in the 70s when uh, everybody pretty well started to change uh, the lofts and links to any certain degree. And uh, so you started seeing, you know, balls fly further because, you know, the eight iron, instead of being a, you know, a, a, a 40 degree or 42 degrees, it was down at 36, and 38. So, yeah, that, that, that all changes. And Billy, in my case, sometimes the bend on the aftershot changed the degree of the lie of the club, huh, Billy? It changed the degree of the shaft. <laughs> 90 degree so, shaft now. So let's go back to 10 West, an 193 yard hole. I'm going to give you two hole locations, back left and back right. What would Hogan's approach be? The same exact shot to the back left as to the back right, or would he modify? Oh, he's always, he's always going to work the ball. So, you know, if it's back right, he's going to cut it. And if it's to the left, he's going to, he's going to hook it in there. So, yeah, and, and, and I think the, the thing that he always tried to uh, produce, particularly when he had a club of that length in his hands, is he always wanted the ball in the air. So uh, he wanted to control, you know, how quickly the ball sat down. And so one of his philosophies always was long irons high, knowing full well that you'll get some dispersion out of that. And he always talked about short irons low. And he always wanted the short irons low because he knew he was going to have spin, but he knew he could hit the, the, uh, the short irons straighter if they were lower. And, and you know, we've all done that. We've all subconsciously or consciously uh, taken a club and made a three-quarter swing, and you're always going to hit it. You're always going to hit it straighter. And so I, I think that's the philosophy that he always endeared. Uh, yeah. I think the other thing that he always spoke to is that if you have a front pin, you wanted to hit a full shot into it. If you had a back pin, you always wanted to hit a three-quarter shot. So he would never or rarely would want to hit a full shot to a back pin. And, and the reason for the three-quarter on the back pin was he always wanted the ball to stay below the hole. And so he knew he could control that better. And on the front pin, he always wanted to make sure that if he accidentally hit the ball harder than he intended, uh, that the ball would end up toward the middle of the green. He'd still be putting. So I think if you, if you just go through your personal round of golf and, and use that approach, I think you'll see that it makes a whole lot of sense. It's it's a very strategic way to score. 
Yeah, I think the only time that he really got carried away like that was at Cherry Hills uh, when Palmer won. Yeah. And uh, that's a shot I heard him talk about. A oh, he number went in the of, lake, right? Yeah. yeah, it was front left pin placement. And he that wasn't was the only ball he ever lost. <laughs> well, he, the only time I ever saw him take his shoe off and, and, and try to get in the water to hit a shot. And obviously it was in the rock, so he couldn't. But uh, I, I guarantee you he lost a lot of sleepless nights on that because he uh, he was such a great dead arm player and taking spin off the ball. And he didn't necessarily hit that shot. Um, with so much spin as he said that he hit the shot short of where he wanted the ball to land. And so I, I don't know the distance. It might've been 70 yards, 65 yards, something like that. But when the ball landed, it, uh, the ball landed toward the front edge of the green. And so that's when it pulled back. If he had landed that ball where he intended, you know, probably five steps further, you know, he'd have been just fine. But the, I have to imagine he never made the same mistake twice in, in his golfing life. He always said that when he hit a bad shot uh, on the golf course, that he'd go to the range and he'd practice that shot again mentally and, and uh, just recreate the shot on the driving range. So he, yes, I, I, I would say that he, he knew what mistakes he was making and there weren't that many, but he knew what mistakes he was making, and he would go directly and work on them. So, yeah, he was he was focused on making sure that he made the most of what he was doing. Talk about his dispersion. Now, let's go to the East Course. You're also familiar with Wingfoot's East Course, a top 100 course. The second East is a par 5 or a par 4 regardless of what you would call it let let's assume he had a 200 yard second shot i'm going to also take us to three east after this i want to understand his dispersion from 200 yards and let's say that was what would he hit there four wood three iron something in that vein i'd probably say he'd hit a four iron and i'd tell you why uh i've played that golf course many many times and uh you're better off landing the ball on the left side of the green and letting the ball just release uh, to wherever, you know, it's going to go. Uh, it is extremely hard to work that ball from right to left off that side hill line and, and hit it in there. I, re I remember the year that, that uh, my partner and I won the Anderson. Uh, I actually hit a drive that I don't know how I hit it, but I ended up hitting a six iron. And I did exactly that. I dropped it on the left side of the green and it, the pin was in the middle right. And it rolled back to the pin, probably five feet from the hole. And we actually won the, won the uh, playoff uh, at that point. But I, I, think he, I think he would approach it like that. Uh, I, I, I think he would have seen that, yeah, you're better off playing the terrain at that particular style of golf course than you are, you know, trying to manage the ball in the areas that are going to fight against the terrain. Uh, I'd almost assure you that that would be something that he would, have, uh, he would advise you to do. Now, Billy and I think it's the fairway bunker 200 yards off the tee, because if we get in there, we're not making five on two East. 
You don't even know where that trap is, Jody. You hit it so long. We (laughs) have problems with that one. But our friend Phil, the golf historian, said the master trap on two east is where, Billy? I don't remember. On the left. It's on the left. On the left. Hogan just hit it to to, to just on the right of that and let it go in. Four iron from 200 yards. If you gave him 10 shots from there or in 10 different rounds, how many times would he hit that green? 10. Yeah, I would say the better <laughs> question is, would he miss the green? <laughs> the yeah. answer to that is uh, no. I'd, Where would the sh- preferable place to hit the tee shot be, the right side or the left? Oh, I think from the right. Yeah, yeah. I, I would think I, so, I think too. They, he'd have comfortably worked it around the bunker off the tee and uh, and and thrown it down to that area because, you know, you've got a little Get bit. Get it into the, to the terrain. Yeah, because you got a flatter lie over there, and yes. uh, gives you a better an opportunity to control control the ball. Missed all the fun on that hole. He missed the bunker on the right off the tee. <laughs> then he missed the crazy run up left to right run up when Billy's hitting his ginty or his Olimar up, up over that <laughs> hill and running it up. It slashes like a, a hockey stick to the right, and you're lucky if you catch it right, you do get on the green. But he's carrying it on the green, so he's go- going all over that that design of Tillinghast on that hole. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing that it's interesting about how Hogan prepared is that uh, he always said when he was getting ready for a tournament that he always went through the golf course while he was hitting balls in the practice range. So, you know, if, like if he's sitting an eight iron uh, and he's warming or he's practicing with his eight iron, um, he would, hit that eight iron as though he was playing, let's say it was three East. So right. he, he would sit there and say, okay, the pins left front. This is the way I'm going to hit this shot. If it's right back, this is the way I'm going to hit this shot. So he, he always said that when he went into the tournament, there wasn't a shot that he hadn't hit before, even if he had hit it on the driving range. So it's, it's a great, it's a great way for a player to prepare competitively uh, to go through the round while you're actually hitting practice balls and not just hit practice balls in the range to work on mechanics. I mean, he already had that taken care of. He took care of that in Fort Worth, but when he went to the, to the tournament itself, you know, he He was was getting shots. Yeah. He was preparing uh, for the golf course that he's going to play. And, and that's a very, very strong mental process to carry yourself through. Many of us just watched the uh, AT&T Pebble Beach. I love the seventh hole there, about 100 yards. Let's assume there's a little right-to-left wind there. What kind of shot would Hogan hit on the seventh hole from 100 yards? Let's say the pin is in, in the back, uh, just in the middle back, dead straight middle back. Well, one of the things he always said when you talk about wind is always said that the wind is not your friend. So and what he meant was like many times when he was downwind, uh, he had actually hit more club and then hit a three quarter shot, just trying to keep the ball under the wind. Because if he threw the ball up in the air, he had no control over the distance the ball was going to travel. So I think in that scenario, you know, you're really talking about the velocity of the wind and he's going to really address it from the standpoint that he's going to throw the ball 
down rather than up. So, I, you know, guys probably hit, you know, 56, 58 degree, you know, wedges today. Uh, I, I don't think he would have. I, I think he would have hit like a pitching wedge, maybe a 46, 48 degree, something like that, and just manage the ball in there. Uh, especially with the greens you know, as spinny as they are at Pebble. I mean, you, you, you're going to get the ball coming back at you. So if you can limit that, you're going to have a better opportunity to score. And I, I think he would have easily approached it like that. Now, he didn't, he didn't play that golf course from the standpoint the way they, the way they maintain it today. So it'd be hard to, it'd be, hard to be uh, sure of how he would actually, you know, feed the ball into the greens. But lows to him was always better than high. There were there there were several comments from the analysts uh, in that saying that oftentimes uh, these guys were better off hitting out of the rough because they would get less spin on the ball in some of those wedges. I guess the only comment I would make is they need to pay more attention to the spin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty talented guys. And, they don't like to hit the three finger nine iron. They want to hit the big spinny wedge or fifty four degree wedge. Come on. Uh, well, go for it if, if that's what you like. Uh, you know, at some point, you got to learn from a guy like Steve Stricker. Okay, he's over 50 or whatever, his age is 60, and he's playing on the senior tour. He's still one of the greatest wedge players. And that, were, you know, would you play um, Steve Stricker against Max Homa from 100 yards? Who would you bet on? Well, I think you'd take Stricker right now. I mean, <laughs> I don't know of a guy that works the ball any better, you know, from 100 yards at any level than he does. Uh, wow, yeah. Let's go it, back it, to Hogan. Was Hogan ever a good putter, a, a fantastic, outstanding putter? Uh, yes. Uh, particularly in the time frame just before his accident. Uh, that's where you see a lot of video of him, you know, making putts, what video they have. But, yeah, I mean, he was a good putter. Uh, even, you know, late into the 1960s, uh, it got him outside of 20 feet. Uh, he was a really good putter. Uh, it was just when he got inside of, let's say, a five- to eight-foot range uh, that he had problems and that's because, you know, he couldn't see out of his left eye. And so what he had to do was to validate the line. He was trying to roll the ball down. Uh, and it just took time for him to visually, you know, find that line. Uh, it, it's an easy conversation because if you get back at 20 feet, you know, you're, you're, you're looking and and you're really using, uh, both eyes to see the line and, and you can move your head and feel comfortable releasing the, the putter head. But when you're close with all the pressure of the events that he was playing in, I mean, if, if you look at it after his accident, you know, he only played in five or six events. So that that's a problem. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not that he isn't able to uh, focus on a short putt, he's just having to take longer to focus on it, to feel comfortable. Um, I don't think you could take a player 
of his stature. And, you know, maybe Tiger Woods will experience this. You know, he's going forward saying he's going to play in a handful of tournaments. Well, to play at the level that he has to to compete against that talent, uh, that's that's going to be really hard to do. Uh, you know, talent spreading. You got Oberg, you got Wyndham Clark, you got all these guys that just no fear. And no matter what age? There's a lot of talent out there, and and it's this isn't just the end of it. I mean, <laughs> the talent coming i mean yeah, i agree this is just the tip of the iceberg oh absolutely it is no i said i i think if you look at his pre-accident domination and and just extrapolate that uh if he hadn't have been in the accident uh what would he have done going forward golly you know ron Syrek builds a really good point you know the golf digest rider yep about Hogan could have easily won 20 to 25 tournaments, you know, majors uh, because of his dominance at that time. And at least uh, one more, they, they should have called that the open during the war years, the one he won. But no, he, the, the Ted Williams he, of golf. <laughs> he clearly, he clearly would tell you that he has five U S opens. <laughs> <laughs> you can debate him on it, but uh, he, <laughs> absolutely uh recognize that fifth medal the betting is interesting in golf now let's say you had a, a magic wand and you had tiger in his 10-year dominance and the same thing for hogan and then take a slice out of nicholas's 25 or 30-year period where he won and you put those out there It'd be quite a match how how would you how would you bet how would you handicap that Oh, gosh, that's a really, really hard one. Cross-era comparisons are a nightmare. Uh, in all sports. Oh, yeah, absolutely, in all sports. Uh, I, the, I think the, the biggest change in a, in a conversation like that or a debate like that is equipment. I mean, take the guys that are there today and give them the equipment uh, that those guys used. What we did at Colonial uh, is on a Tuesday, we'd set up a tent on the driving range with some of Hogan's uh, clubs that he used uh, right near the end of his career. And the guys would take them and hit them. And uh, obviously they're hitting them with the ball of today, not the Bellotta ball of yesterday. And they'd have a track man standing, uh, sitting there, you know, showing them what yardages they were carrying and, uh, hitting a persimmon, you know, headed driver that's 43 inches and, uh, throwing it out there, uh, with that golf ball, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're 280, 275 comfortably, uh, but put a blot of ball into that mix, and they're probably going to be at 265. Or, or the head of the drivers, the size of a rescue today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a 265cc driver, uh, where today you're looking at 460. Uh, yeah, your, your miss hits are incredibly, uh, uh, your dispersion with that big headed driver is, is just nowhere near what it would be with a with a 260 
265 cc dri uh, driver back then on it, whether it's a strata block or it's a, a persimmon head. You also have to factor in uh, course conditions and green speeds, which are, you know, green speeds are way quicker now than they were in the 60s and oh, 70s. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a tough. Looking at it a different way, if you gave, if you put a dime in the middle of the club that Rory McElroy is using and gave him, you know, a couple hours to hit balls such that there would be some markings on that iron, seven iron, five iron, whatever you gave him, would that dime be the same shape or would it be wider on the club than Hogan? Because I know Hogan had a very tight shape on his irons. I think you talked about that with us. What would it look like? Uh, yeah, I think easily, you know, you'd see some wear. I think the thing that you'd see that that is uh, more significant than that is that the uh, the center of the club is not the solid part of the club back then. You know, they've changed with the materials and with the weighting schemes and the cavity backs. They've changed the design of the of the iron that we used to hit. So all his markings were inside of center. They were closer to the hosel. There was, that's where the sweet spot was, whereas it's uh, yeah. more middle now, right? Yeah, because if you well, picked up- It's all over the club. I'm sorry? Now the sweet spot's, you know, 35, 45% of the face of the club. Yeah, uh, with perimeter weighting, you know, there's so much more that you can do uh, to help the player. But back in those days, you know, what you were really dealing with was a very, very small area inside the center of the club, uh, which you would consider, you know, the, the most solid part of the strike. And, and uh, I think if you picked his club up and you looked at the face of it, you'd go like, well, wait a second, he's not hitting it in the center. Oh, wait a minute. He really is hitting it in the center. Yeah, he's hitting <laughs> it where he wants to hit it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess baseball right. bats would be similar, you know, for major league players. That yeah. Closer you get to that one sweet spot. So today, Jody, H Hogan's out here today, and he liked his favorite tournaments were the, I think you said his favorite tournaments were the one they were giving big prizes. Or Aldo asked him, he said, what tournaments were most important to you? And he, his reply was any tournament that they wrote a check. <laughs> so how would he deal with today? He would be obviously courted by Liv or lots of other people. How would he deal with today as we wrap up? Okay, the funny story I would tell you is that there was a, a baseball pitcher, a knuckleballer named Charlie Huff. Charlie wanted a set of Hogan clubs, and so he was pitching for the Texas Rangers back then, and we used to play golf quite a bit. And so the deal was that uh, I called over to Hogan plant, and I had Ronnie McGraw, who was their club builder, build uh, Charlie a set of clubs. Well, Charlie came over, or Ronnie called me and said, hey, Charlie's clubs are ready. So I asked Charlie to come over and meet me, and I took him over, and I said, hey, have you ever met Hogan? And he goes like, no. I said, would you like to? And he said, uh, can I? And I said, sure, I'll call him, and uh, we'll go get your clubs and then introduce you to him. In that conversation, Charlie had just signed a uh, $10 million contract which you know baseball players, it's guaranteed, with the Texas Rangers. So in that conversation, I said to Mr. Hogan, I said, Charlie just signed a $10 million contract 
with the Texas Rangers. And he said, oh, really? What does that mean? And I said, regardless of how many pitches he throws or if he is injured, they still give him $10 million. And Hogan looked at him and he said, that can't be true. <laughs> They're not going to pay you for not playing. And he said, yes, they will. <laughs> so now you're paying for the set of golf clubs we just made for you. Hogan could not believe uh, that you could get paid and not perform. If you'll remember, he did a commercial one time. They went out to Riviera and they got on the fourth tee, which is a part three, to shoot this uh, shot. So what happened was uh, he hit three balls, Hank said. He bladed the first one and he said he hit the second one fat and it was with a three iron. And he looked over and he said, okay, roll the cameras, I'm ready. <laughs> then he hit the third one dead flush and got it. And, and Hank said they thought they'd be there all day. He said he hit that ball, got back in the cart, and went back to the clubhouse. He said, is that one the one you wanted? And they go like, well, absolutely. I mean, you just made a perfect swing. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, oh, well, at least we have the laugh to add it. <laughs> right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.